0: Now let's listen to a great program.
1: Good evening. i remind you that uh, if you don't have the Jesus prayer, we have some in the the center. Also this wonderful little booklet by uh, the exorcist Father Ippager, Daily Prayers to Save America. Please feel free to take as many as you'd like and distribute them. I'd like to do kind of an overview of where we've been. The first night, the focus was on sacrifice. And it reminds us that every Mass takes us simultaneously to Calvary and into the heavenly Jerusalem. And we're called to offer ourselves to tag on with the sacrifice of Christ by the offering ourselves. And the theme, the question, were you there? when they crucified my Lord? And the answer is yes, every time we attend Mass. The second night, the focus was on communion. And every Mass is also a wedding ceremony. And so we're reminded that receiving the Holy Eucharist is the consummation rite of the wedding of the Lamb with his bride, the members of the church. And the theme was the kiss of the bridegroom. Well, tonight, the focus is on the presence. And Jesus promise, I will be with you always. The Catechism of the Catholic Church affirms a truth that faithful Catholics have always firmly believed, namely, that the Blessed Eucharist, as Father just said, is the source and the summit of the Christian life. Why? Because the Eucharist makes present the redemptive sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. And it also unites our modest offering with the sacrifice of Jesus, our head. And therefore, the catechism teaches that our divine Lord's presence under the humble appearance of bread and wine Raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end or the goal of all the sacraments. So we see then that the power of the Blessed Eucharist to transform us into Christ is astounding. A superb early example of the power of the Eucharist is unfolded in the life of the martyr, Saint Ignatius of Antioch, who died in the arenas in Rome in the year 109, or excuse me, 107. On a journey to his death, accompanied by a detachment of ten brutal soldiers that he called leopards. He wrote seven letters to seven churches that give us wonderful insights into the beliefs of the early church. And to the church at Rome, this is what he wrote. Please do not be unseasonably kind to me. Well, what was his concern? He feared that they might prevent his martyrdom, and therefore he pleaded, let me be the food for the wild beast through whom I can reach God. And because he had been transformed into Christ through the Eucharist, he added, I am God's wheat and I am being ground by the teeth of the wild beast that I might prove to be pure bread. And through these instruments, I might prove to be a sacrifice for God. With very few of us we have the privilege of becoming martyrs. But the goal of the sacrifice at Mass and the worthy reception of Holy Communion is to transform us into a spirit of unconditional love that would make us suitable to die a martyr's death. The Blessed Eucharist is designed to form saints, and that raises a tough question. Why am I, maybe why are we, not saints? I can't help thinking of Saint Augustine, who lamented his late conversion Oh, how late have I loved thee. And every time I remember that, I add, And Lord, how poorly do I love thee still. Maybe some of you feel the same way. So when we look squarely into ourselves, we must admit, well, something is amiss in the infusion of grace that I receive or should be receiving at the sacrifice of the Mass and in the reception of the Blessed Eucharist. Well, clearly, the deficiency is not in the power of the Eucharist. Kind of narrows it down. And therefore, let's do a brief self-examination and let's start with the virtue of faith. Earlier this year, you might recall, Father Pablo shared with us the precious little story about the Down syndrome little girl who had not made her first communion because they were concerned. Well, she didn't really know the difference. Was it really Jesus? And so the pastor pointed to the crucifix and said, who is that? She said, oh, that's Jesus. Then he pointed to the tabernacle. Who's in there? She said, well, that's Jesus. And he says, well, we have two Jesuses? He says, no, no, no. Let me explain. You see, The one up there, that's the fake Jesus. The one in there, that's the real Jesus. St. Thomas Aquinas couldn't have given a better answer than that. Tragically, there are many Catholics today who mistakenly think that the Eucharist is the fake Jesus. How did this happen? Few Christian doctrines are taught in sacred scripture as plainly, as explicitly is the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Jesus' own words, this is my body. This is my blood. I mean, how can it be clearer than that? Listen to how Jesus responded to his quarreling disciples when he gave them the bread of life discourse. Truly, truly, or amen, amen, some translations have it. It's like an old formula. He's saying, pay attention. What I'm saying now is really important. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. The passage is even more explicit in the Greek text, for the word used for flesh is sarx. That word is always used in the Greek language to mean real flesh, In the first chapter of John's Gospel, when John wants to make sure we understand Jesus assumed a real body, and the word became sarks, the word became flesh. And then, in order to add to the literal understanding of eating his flesh, Jesus used the word trogo, which actually means to chew. Jesus' teaching on the Blessed Eucharist is so explicit that unbelieving disciples turned their backs on him, declaring, this is a hard saying. And when Jesus asked the disciples, will you also go away? Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Tragically, we read that passage One of the unbelievers was an apostle. For Jesus said, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? And then John clarified. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the 12, was to betray him. The historical evidence is overwhelming that the early church believed and taught that the Eucharist was truly the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. For example, the Protestant scholar J.N.D. Kelly in his famous work, Early Christian Doctrine, said, in the third century, the early Christians' identification of the Eucharistic bread and wine with the Lord's body and blood continued unchanged. Additionally, the respected non-Catholic scholar Darwell Stone wrote, throughout the writings of the Father, these great early Christian writings in the first eight centuries, were an unbroken agreement that the consecrated bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ, and that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. How do we get to the point today that many Catholics are confused about this doctrine? During the Second Vatican Council, Pope Paul VI was informed that three prominent theologians, Catholic so-called Catholic theologians, were preparing to publish books that denied the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Alarmed, the Holy Father wrote a beautiful encyclical, Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith, in which he defended the church's unbroken tradition and teaching and affirmation that the Eucharist is indeed the body, the blood, and the soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, the widespread promulgation of the decrees of the Second Vatican Council came out around the same time, and very few people even heard about the encyclical Mysterium Fidei. I mean, I wonder how many of you ever heard of it. But in contrast, the books of the dissenting theologians were widely circulated even in seminaries. In fact, one popular book sold 2 million copies in the United States until Carter Ratzinger had the imprimatur pulled. It was going to be some time before these writings were challenged by the Holy See. And as a result, a major shift began to appear in Catholic catechetical material. In some cases... The real presence was explicitly denied. But in many, many other cases, it was just ignored. Let me share a personal experience. In 1992, before we came back here, I was asked to teach a religion class to high school students who were preparing for confirmation. When I examined, the assigned text, I was amazed to discover that each of the sacraments was gutted of its real meaning. So, for example, the Eucharist was expounded as, well, it's the Holy Meal. But the real presence was never stated. The Mass was explained as, well, this is the gathering of the people of God. It was never explained as a sacrifice and what we ought to be doing there. And so because of this widespread lack of catechetical instruction, it's not surprising that many Catholics today, according to the Pew Research, do not believe in the Eucharist. They believe that the Eucharist is the fake Jesus, not the real Jesus. Now, it's certainly unlikely that that would fit any of you. But, you know, there's more to saving faith than just a mere intellectual assent. In his insightful instruction on the virtue of faith, St. James makes a startling statement. This is what he wrote. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even demons believe and shudder. And he concluded by affirming that faith apart from works is dead. In a similar context, St. Paul, in his letter through Galatians wrote that what we need is faith working through love. And so yes, the demons believed, all right, the devil believes, but his faith is dead because there's no love. When a distraught father brought his handicapped son to Jesus, our Lord said to him, all things are possible to those who believe. And the man cried out in reply, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that a prayer we can all make? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So let's continue our examination. Before you arrive at church at Mass, are we preparing ourselves to enter into the mystery of Christ's passion? How do we think about Sunday Mass? Is it the inconvenience of an obligation? Or is it the high point of our week as we have this special time to be with the one who loves us. When our right knee touches the floor in genuflection, are we making an active, conscious act of adoration? Are we interiorly affirming our faith in the Blessed Trinity when we make the sign of the cross and affirming our belief in our redemption? To what degree are we repenting of our sins during the prayer? Lord, have mercy. Are we paying attention to the scripture readings, offering ourselves to the Father during the offertory, renewing our covenant, nuptial vows at the consecration, and praying for others? I've heard people say, maybe you also, I don't get anything out of Mass. Well, maybe they feel that way because they never put anything into the Mass. How much of ourselves are we investing in every Mass that we attend? It is normal to battle distractions at Mass. Remember, God looks to our heart, not our external perfection. We need to recall that, especially when we're grappling with disruptive small children. Some of us will remember those days. That's when we begin wondering, let's see, did God really say thou shall not kill? It's, It's wonderful how small children love to hear their voices echoing in church. I know mine did. And yet, patiently enduring their embarrassing disturbances are far more pleasing to God than we can even imagine. After all, Jesus lovingly declared, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. That quotation is so important. The Holy Spirit inspired it in three of the four gospels. You see, when we look at the disruptive children, mass, that's how Jesus sees us. When our Lord met the apostles at the Lake of Galilee after the resurrection, He addresses them as baby boys. Did you catch any fish? The Holy Spirit loves to see little children at church, and in the Eucharistic chapel. So let's continue our self-examination a little more. How do we receive Holy Communion? Does reverence, love, and awe exude from us as we receive in our hand or on our tongue the creator of the universe and our loving Savior? How apparent is it that we utterly believe that Jesus is truly present? I'd love to be able to kneel down when I go receive communion from Father, but unfortunately, pulling myself up on his chairs is probably not a good idea. Are we captivated by the divine husband, like the bride in the Song of Songs, whose heart bursts out of love and says, my beloved is mine and I am his? Or does our reception of the Eucharist seem indifferent, as if we're just going through the motions. What is our awareness that we are participating in an act of such supernatural intimacy that is not even granted to angels, and it's granted to us? One of our spiritual challenges is to go back to Tennessee to put our spiritual life in compartments rather than integrating it throughout our life. So the attitude goes something like this. Okay, so I've attended mass, that's done. Now, I can drive home, or fix dinner, and get to work. I'll consider another example. Does a behavior say, okay, I've met my obligation, so now I can get on with the task. Let's see, what time does the game come on? And is Jesus invited to watch it with us? The catechism teaches us that the most common yet most hidden temptation is our lack of faith. It expresses itself not primarily in declared incredulity, that is, an explicit denial, but by our actual preferences, our choices, It is the moment of truth for the heart. What is my real love? The way we put Jesus away on a shelf reminds me of the tale of the clueless husband. Once upon a time, or so the story goes, he came home from work and his wife announced, I'm thinking of divorce. I saw an attorney today says, what are you talking about? We've been married 35 years. Yes, but you don't love me. You never tell me you love me. Oh, what are you talking about? Don't you remember? On our wedding day 35 years ago, I said I love you. If I changed my mind, I would have told you. <clears throat> I'm afraid something like that happens to Jesus after Mass. We put him away until the next service, As we become absorbed with the activities of this world. And sadly, we often do not include him in the rest of our day or the rest of our week. St. Paul admonishes us in his letter to the Ephesians pray at all times. And then to Thessalonians, he says pray constantly. See, prayer is the love language that continually unites us to the one who loves us. The catechism refers to prayer as the coven or spousal relationship between God and man in Christ. But when our prayer is absent, the self-sacrifice we pledge at mass and the loving intimacy we experience in Holy Communion ceases to navigate us through the activities of our daily life. And so what happens? We drift off, preoccupied with the things of this world, and our relationship with Jesus becomes distant. So when we again encounter the Eucharistic Jesus, well, we're more like strangers meeting in the night rather than intimates. There's one particular form of prayer that is transformative as it powerfully expands our loving relationship with Jesus. I'm referring to Eucharistic adoration. We are so wonderfully blessed at St. Peter's to have a 24-7 Eucharistic chapel where we can join with fellow Catholics in adoring our glorified Lord, who is present under the unassuming form of a wafer of bread. St. Paul reminds us that Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a slave or a servant, being formed in the likeness of men. And being formed in our likeness, he humbled himself becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Truly, truly, Jesus called the hidden God who shielded his divinity, except for that brief moment during the transfiguration and in the blessed Eucharist, he hides his divinity and his humanity to come to us in the Eucharist. And so, yes, yes, We say we believe, but do we really believe that the creator of the universe is waiting for us in the Eucharistic chapel with a heart burning with love, tenderness, and mercy? Poor Jesus. He loves us so much, and we so often neglect his loving presence. On April the 28th of this year, there occurred the sensational discovery of Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster's incorruptible body. I'm sure you remember that. Thousands of pilgrims flocked throughout Abbey of Our Lady of Ephesus in Gowen, Missouri, during the three-day memorial weekend in order to witness the wonder. But I wonder, How many of those visitors stopped in to adore the greater miracle, the hidden Jesus in the Eucharist that was in the tabernacle of that abbey church? We are blessed. We have many adorers in our parish. But we need more. We can't spend enough time with Jesus. Talk to anyone who adores regularly and they will assure you that the experience is life-changing. Looking back over my business career, I noticed an unfortunate pattern. When I spent more time with the hidden Jesus, I found that I prayed more and worked less. Guess what? The business always did better. But there were other times... I wasn't spending so much time with Jesus. I wasn't praying the whole lot, and I was working more. The business didn't do as well. Hmm, wonder what that's all about. Well, when I prayed more and worked less, when I went to the office, guess what? I brought Jesus with me. And what my people needed was a lot less of me and a lot more of Jesus. But when I prayed less and didn't spend time with Jesus, guess what? I just brought me to the office. And that's not what anybody needs. It's not what you need. Bishop Sheen, in every retreat he ever gave to lay people, urged us to spend an hour of Eucharistic adoration daily. He did it for over 60 years. Wow. And the wonderful little book, Encino Yeso, and I'll have some copies of it for you later. It means on the breast of Jesus. It's a quotation from St. Jerome's uh, Latin translation of John's Gospel. It's a tender account of this incredible dialogue between Jesus and his mother and this anonymous monk. It's especially directed to priests, but it invites all Christians to embrace Jesus in adoration, which is the remedy for the crisis, the worldliness, the lukewarmness, the infidelity, the intellectual confusion, and the spiritual anguish that is corrupting our world. It's also destroying our families. Only the hidden Jesus in the Eucharist can bring this about the long for renewal of the Catholic Church on earth. It'll be the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. We are called to participate in this glorious victory. And Jesus' tender message to us is very moving. Consider just two examples I have for you. He says to this monk, do not give in to the feelings of guilt that assail you because you are not living up to the ideal you have set for yourself. I do not ask you to be faithful to an ideal. I ask only that you be my friend and live at every moment in the grace of my divine friendship. All the rest follows. Perfection is the fruit of friendship with me. Love me. Believe in me. Believe in my unconditional love for you. Trust me. Understand a little of the sorrow of my Eucharistic heart that is utterly forsaken in countless tabernacles all over the world. Why do I multiply my glorious presence in so real and miraculous a way, if not to be close to the souls whom I love with a burning passion and with consummate tenderness. And Then he says, but I am left alone. Jesus is not satisfied to be a part of our life. So he makes himself present and available in the sacrament of his love, the blessed Eucharist, so we can come into his presence and experience his love. He promised us, I will be with you always. It was his last promise in Matthew's gospel. It was his farewell. He only asked that we leave him free to act upon us to let him love us. Remember, when we appeal to Jesus' Eucharistic heart, he cannot refuse what we ask for. In fact, often his loving heart gives us better gifts than the one we ask for. His generosity is only limited by the boundlessness of his infinite wisdom and generosity. In fact, it's amazing. Jesus is so full of surprises. One of Jesus' most piercing sorrows in Gethsemane was the awareness of the countless acts of indifference, coldness, and even cruel insensitivity of many Christians toward his loving presence in the Eucharist. In Gethsemane, Jesus rejected Peter's act of violence. He also spurned the support of 12 legions, 20,000 angels. What did he prefer instead? The love of 12 weak humans. One who betrayed him, one who denied even knowing him, taking a curse. And at some point, all the others abandoned him. So, too, it is today. Can't we sometimes see ourselves perfigured in one or more of that motley group? Indeed, they were not yet the stuff from which martyrs are made. That changed radically in the renewal of the breaking of the bread and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wants to do the same with each of us. In these difficult times, we can discover a shortcut to holiness in the life of little Francisco Marto, who achieved sainthood at the tender age of 11. How did that happen? His short life produced no worldly accomplishments. But spiritually, it was a very different matter. You see, this little boy learned to love and to love a lot because he treasured the difference between the fake Jesus and the real Jesus. And his holiness was the result of the mystical, intimate relationship he spent with the hidden Jesus, his best friend in the Eucharist. It is the same journey of intimacy. That's available to each one of us. Consider another saint. In the narrative of Peter's threefold denial, we can see a reflection of ourselves. As soon as Peter declared for the third time, I do not know the man, the Lord turned and looked at Peter, St. Luke tells us, It was an awful moment of truth. Peter came face to face with his wretchedness, the abyss of perdition, and also Jesus' burning love and the abyss of hope. So whether we come before the hidden Jesus with the innocence of little Francisco or the woundedness of old Peter, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And so he says to us, come to me. Peter Creef makes a vital point that the one and only absolutely important choice every human being who ever lived must make is the choice between saying yes or no to God's love. Little Francisco and broken Peter said yes. Let us all do the same. Best friends, Develop their closeness by sharing and spending time together. It is the same with Jesus. We need to spend time with him, sharing our hopes and our dreams, our thoughts, our troubles, our sinfulness, our ineptitude. And if we don't know how to talk to Jesus, you might want to consider reading the little book, He and I. It's a wonderful little explanation on how, simply how to pray. The intimacy that awaits us. It's a journey that so many in our parish have already experienced. It's wonderfully captured by a favorite poem of mine written by Father Abram Ryan. It's called The Song of the Mystic. Long ago, I was weary of of, of, I was weary of voices whose music My heart could not win. Long ago, I was weary of noises that fretted my soul with their din. Long ago, I was weary of places where I met but the human and sin. And so I walked in the world with the worldly. I craved what the world never gave. And still did I pine for the perfect and still found the false with the true. I sought mid the human for heaven, but caught a mere glimpse of its blue, and I wept when the clouds of the mortal veiled even that glimpse from my view. And so I toiled on, heart tired of the human, and I moaned mid the masses of men till I knelt long ago at an altar and I heard a voice call me. That happened to me at Lourdes in 1982. This is what I heard. When was the last time that you told my Jesus you loved him? And I could not remember. Since then, I walked down the valley of silence that lies far beyond mortal men. Do you ask what I found in the valley? Tis my trysting place, my meeting place with the divine. And I fell at the feet of the holy, and above me a voice said, Be mine. And there rose to the depth of my spirit an echo my heart shall be thine. Do you ask how I live in the valley? I weep and I dream and I pray. But my tears are as sweet as the dewdrops that fall on the roses in May. And my prayer, like the perfume from censers ascended to God night and day. Do you ask me the place of the valley, ye hearts, That are harvored with care. It lies afar between mountains, and the Eucharistic Jesus and his angels are there. One is the dark mount of sorrow where I weep over my sins, and one is the broad mount of prayer where I say with joy and amazement. My beloved is mine, and I am his. So let us end with the beautiful Jesus prayer. Oh, my divine Savior, transform me into yourself. May my hands be the hands of Jesus. May my tongue be the tongue of Jesus. Grant that every factor of my body may serve only to glorify you. Above all, transform my soul and all its powers, that my memory, my will, and my affections may be the memory, the will, and the affections of Jesus. And I pray you to destroy in me all that is not you, and grant that I may live but in you and for you, and that I may truly say with St. Paul, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. Thank you so much.
0: You can also email us at MagnificatCST at AOL.com or call 504-828-MARY, M-A-R-Y. Until the next time, may God bless you.